Well, good morning. Welcome to Apostles Houston. Thanks so much for joining us online today, especially if you're visiting with us. Uh, my name is David Cumbie. I'm the lead pastor here. And as we get started looking at God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to stand as I read from the Gospel of John. This is our custom, just to stand and to honor God's Word to us. So I'll be reading from John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we come um, hungry and in need to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that wherever we are this morning, as we're scattered but gathered in the name of Jesus, you would speak to us and that you would press these words deep into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a good friend of mine um, once told me that in times of crisis, our cracks become canyons. And I've thought of that phrase a lot lately. It's, it's so true, I think, especially in our personal lives, but also in our culture, and even, I think, in, in God's church, that our cracks ha- have become canyons. That this crisis that we're enduring has had the capacity to create deep division. Take the question of mask. For example, I mean, who would have thought masks would be so divisive? But I saw a a, a recent poll uh, that showed almost 75% of Republican voters reject the need to wear a mask. Uh, And flip that the other way, 75% of Democrats support masks as uh, crucial. And so I've I've been looking at things like this, and I even kind of came across this video, maybe you saw it as a viral video, of a woman who refused to wear a mask in a California Trader Joe's. And she almost had what I can only describe as kind of this breakdown uh, when she was asked to put on a mask by one of the employees. And then what was really interesting to me is that she was subsequently, as this went viral on Twitter, she was subsequently shamed by some and lauded by others. And, and, and this is playing out all over the place, even in the church. Uh, this, this issue of mask even itself is divisive. And so I, I think it's in part because there's this, this level of frustration, I think, with just everything. Everything just feels so disrupted. Um, we feel like we're not in control. We don't know how to fix things. And we're all becoming, I've noticed, I, I noticed this in my own life, becoming kind of hyper opinionated about things, big and small. And the question is, why? And I think really it comes back to this, that our cracks have become canyons. And so whether it's COVID or race or gender or the looming election, there's just so many things that seem divisive right now. And in particular, I think this practice of kind of publicly shaming people or groups of people has become a really powerful weapon with huge ramifications that not only divide us, but actually have the power to destroy lives and livelihoods. David Brooks, um, writing a number of years ago in an article about uh, cancel culture on college campuses. He he said this. 
He said, many people now carefully guard their words on campus, afraid they might transgress one of the norms that have become, uh, that one of the norms that have come into existence. Those accused of incorrect thought face ruinous consequences. When a moral crusade spreads across campus, many students feel compelled to post uh, support of it on Facebook within minutes, and if they don't, they will be uh, noticed and then condemned. That was in 2016. And now here in 2020, four years later, it's almost as if that campus reality, campus life has become a part of our everyday life. It's, it's happening from every direction, you know, right, left, center. Everyone is kind of taking on this, this MO of shame in order to kind of win the argument or win the point. Andy Crouch observed that this cultural shift that Brooks is talking about uh, has been taking place for a while. And he says this, he says that, that society's moral life now is not being built on a continuum of right and wrong, but on a continuum of inclusion and exclusion, which means controversies erupt because even a minor slight to a person or to a group can be perceived as a basic threat to one's identity. And so what's happened is, is this has kind of created a culture in which the ultimate sin uh, in our culture, uh, in some sense, is to criticize anyone, especially on any moral ground, whether it's about gender or race or mask or anything. Uh, and we can't talk anymore in terms of good and bad. We're supposed to talk in terms of respect and recognition only. And these are all the hallmarks of what you could call a new kind of shame culture that's taking root in our country. Now, on the one hand, I think this new kind of shame culture dynamic actually can be a helpful corrective. Uh, what I mean is it can correct some of the kind of hyper-individualistic aspects of our culture. It can force us to think, in other words, not just about ourselves, but about others, what is good for for someone else. It might help us focus our attention, for example, on common goods, things like justice and equality. On the other hand, I think we also have to be very aware that what is taking place will increasingly make following Jesus uh, a sin in the culture's eyes. Um, What I mean by that is that our culture will see uh, the act of following Jesus, the mere act of following Jesus, to be offensive because it actually believes in a moral objective reality. So, for example, just acknowledging the uniqueness of Jesus in and of itself becomes not only problematic, but offensive and something that should be rejected and shamed. And so the the current crisis, I think, is exposing this this cultural crack, and it's opening up, and it's becoming this, this canyon, and that we as followers of Jesus, we have to be aware of what's happening and aware of how it's shaping not only the culture, but but ourselves, our own lives, and aware of how we as the church need to live into this moment and how we need to engage with culture, especially when increasingly we will be rejected and shamed for following Jesus. And so I want to ask you to to grab uh, your Bible and open up to 1 Peter because this morning I want us to look at 1 Peter and the Apostle Peter's words uh, again here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, so in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4, this is what he writes. He says, As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In verse 6, Peter quotes the prophet Isaiah when he says, whoever believes in him, that is, believes in Jesus, will not be put to shame. And so first, I just want to ask, what is shame? Many in our culture uh, have kind of started to live out of this understanding of shame as this painful feeling of, of unworthiness and isolation. I think especially kind of in the millennial generation, this has felt really acutely for a whole host of different reasons. And the church has responded to that. And I think in, this, is, this is overall a really good movement within the church to, to encourage people to throw off shame and to free people from the sense that, that they're being condemned or rejected by God for who they are. Um, that's good. And I think it's important um, along with that that we recognize that Jesus saves us not only from our guilt, the guilt of our sin, but he saves us from shame from our sense that we are actually unlovable. But at the same time, we have to deal with not just a psychological experience of shame, but our shame before God. So think back to Genesis, to the very beginning. We're told that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, but then their disobedience made them feel unworthy and left them ashamed before God. They had to cover themselves in God's presence. Our unfaithfulness and disobedience, in other words, to, to God has caused us to actually not only experience shame, but to dishonor God. Uh, and so it's right in that sense that we should feel shame uh, because we've turned from God and we've made ourselves actually enemies of God, is what Scripture tells us, enemies of Him and His goodness. The good news is that Jesus solves that entire problem of shame as the faithful and obedient son who honored the father. He takes to himself our sin, our guilt and shame, and he cleanses the stain of our guilt and he removes the covering of shame. And so not only does Christ remove our shame, but he actually restores our honor. We are glorified and honored in and with Jesus. That's what Peter means in verse 7 when he says, so the honor is for you who believe. When we put our trust in Jesus... We honor God, and he honors us. Verse 9 tells us he honors us who are trusting in Jesus by making us his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his special possession, is what Peter says. And so that frees us from this power of shame, of thinking that we're, we're unlovable, because no longer uh, do we have to think of ourselves in those terms. In fact, we know who we are, and we know that we're loved. And so that frees us from looking to others or to other things to affirm who we are or to give us value. And rather, we seek our glory and our honor and our praise from God himself. 
So Peter says, in him we will not be put to shame. But there's a, there's a however here. Uh, Peter wants to stress that we will not be put to shame in Christ, but we will be put to shame by the world. Peter says in verse 4 that Jesus himself was the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. He repeats this, that Jesus was rejected in verse 7, and he goes on to say that Jesus actually causes people to stumble um, and to fall. And so in Jesus himself, what we find is that God was rejected by humanity. Jesus was rejected for claiming to be able to save us actually from our guilt and our shame, for challenging our desire to, to hold power and to hold on to control, to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. And he took our shame on the cross, he took our place, and he suffered uh, the consequences of our rebellion and rejection uh, of God. And so Peter says, we too then are living stones built on Jesus. So we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that the world who rejected Jesus now rejects us as his followers. And so in a morally subjective culture, we will increasingly be faced with rejection, with public shame. We, in other words, we will be canceled for Christ. And, and I want to be clear about what I mean when I say we're rejected, shamed, canceled for Christ. I want to be clear that that's not based on our opinions or our preferences, and in particular, in particular, not on our political opinions. We have to be increasingly careful in this environment not to kind of baptize our ideological convictions with our faith. We can't put a thin veneer of gospel, as it were, over our own kind of worldly philosophies. Mark Sayers writes um, that as followers of Jesus, uh, we are entering a world in which Christian virtue does not shade our political alliances uh, on either the far right or the far left. A world in which Americans are Christians in name only and may confuse political ideologies with faith. It becomes a world, he says, without forgiveness, which seeks to not to compromise, but the utter humiliation of one's culture and political enemies. And so what he's getting at here is that to follow Jesus will increasingly put us in a position where we will be rejected from every side by both the right and the left, by conservative and progressive. And that shouldn't surprise us, really. It's always been the way for faithful followers of Jesus. Faithfully following Jesus and his way of life as revealed in the scriptures will mean walking the path he walked, the path of rejection, the way of the cross. And so given that we are, um, we are not ashamed in Jesus, but we are shamed by the world, how do we then live out our faith? How do we live as followers of Jesus in a culture of shame and rejection? I want to highlight just a few ways I think we can think about this based on 1 Peter 2. So first, we need to make Jesus precious. In verse 4, Peter tells us that Jesus was chosen by God and precious to him. Again, in verse 7, he, he tells us, now to those who believe, this stone, this, this Jesus has become precious. And so Jesus is precious to God, and Jesus has become precious to us. And when something is precious to you, it's not only valuable, but it, it's something uh, that you make every effort to kind of uh, 
to, to take care of. I remember when we moved to Houston, um, we had a, a few small boxes of things that were really valuable to us. And I remember writing on the side of, of one of these boxes that it was precious because it included like these kind of keepsakes for us. And we actually, we, we took those boxes instead of letting the movers put them in the big truck, we put them in our car uh, to take with us, and we drove them across the country ourselves. Um, and so their, their value, their, the fact that they were precious to us, actually shaped um, our decision-making and, and our behavior. And so Peter's saying the same thing about Jesus here. He's precious to us. He says it twice. Jesus is precious to us and to God. And so who he is to us and what he thinks about us is what shapes uh, our lives, our decisions, and our behavior. And so the more that Jesus becomes precious to us, the less kind of devastating and hurtful the world's rejection of us becomes. Because even if I'm canceled, right, even if I'm suffering or ashamed by my culture, it may hurt, but I can endure it. Because I know Jesus is more precious to me than my reputation, more precious to me than my possessions or any, any social media metric. I know that Jesus is the most important and most precious thing in my life. And so it shapes how I think about my life. And the more precious Jesus is too, the the more hope I think we'll have in the face of suffering. Peter says that Jesus is the living stone, that he rose from the dead and and he reigns over creation now. And not only that, one day he'll return and all injustice, all suffering, all shame in the world will end and he'll establish his kingdom forever. And so when Jesus is precious to us, we can see our circumstances in light of that greater reality. And so we want to make Jesus precious. Second, uh, I think we want to expect the rejection. Uh, I think we really need to realize that things have changed in our nation, and I think it's only going to continue. Uh, the American experience that, that's taken place over the last probably two centuries in the history of the world and in the history of the church is not the norm. It's been exceptional in this way. Most, most Christians around the world, even today, even in our own lifetime, have faced rejection and shame and persecution. And so our experience has been a blessing, but I think it's left us vulnerable. Uh, We become kind of comfortable with this idea of being accepted by our culture, and rejection feels strange and disorienting. And and by every metric, this is exactly what's taking place, that Christendom is in decline. right? So since 2000, just one metric, since 2000, the number of Americans who would identify themselves as practicing Christians has declined by 50%. That's according to the Barner Group. You've probably seen church membership it's just been steadily declining over the last 50 or so years. Our culture is going through a major shift. And until a generation ago, uh, you know, most adults had a similar kind of understanding of, of our culture. Uh, their moral intu- intuitions were kind of oriented in the same direction, whether they were followers of Jesus or whether they didn't believe or anything in between. But that, that's not the landscape anymore. And so we need to recognize that things have changed and prepare for that. I used to swim competitively. And I remember one of my favorite coaches, Coach Patty, um, she would always tell us that we had to swim hard, swim hard, swim hard. She would push us harder than any coach I've ever had. And one of the things she would tell us is that we needed to be ready for the piano to drop. And what she meant was that when you get to that point when you're swimming and you don't feel like you can take another stroke, your arms are heavy, your body just feels like you're just going to sink, that's the moment when the piano drops. It just drops on your back and you feel like you're just going to sink. And she would say, know that moment's coming and be prepared for it so you can push through it. 
And, and I think something like that uh, idea is really helpful for us as followers of Jesus, because knowing that the piano is going to drop, that's what Peter is telling us. Jesus was rejected. You'll be rejected. Helps us prepare. It helps us to know and not be surprised by the persecution and the suffering and the hardship that we're going to face. So we need to, we need to expect rejection. Third, we need to exercise soft difference. I'll explain what that is in just a second. But when we're rejected by culture, I think there's two ways we might be tempted to respond. One, uh, with passivity, or on the other hand, with aggression. And Jesus offers us a, a different way, uh, what you might describe as doing good in the face of suffering. First Peter gets at this when he says, live such good lives among those who do not know Jesus, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It echoes this idea in Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you uh, and pray to the Lord for it, that, that it would prosper. And so Jesus is calling us to this kind of posture in the face of rejection from culture. Theologian Miroslav Volf is the one who coined this phrase, soft difference. And I think it's a really helpful idea. And this is what he means by that. He says, fear for oneself and one's identity can create hardness. The difference that joins itself to hardness always presents the other person, the other people, uh, as a choice to either submit or be rejected. But the way of Jesus the way of gentleness invites us to take the form of witnessing invitation. We are called to seek to win others without pressure or manipulation. The soft difference, he says, is the missionary side of following in the footsteps of a crucified Messiah. It is not optional, but part and parcel of our identity in Jesus. In other words, he's saying we, we live in our culture, um, but we don't respond like our culture. Right? We refuse to, to cancel, to reject, to shame, even though we ourselves are being canceled and rejected and shamed. We live in a place of tension right? where we can affirm what is good and we can say no to what is not, but we don't attack, neither do we withdraw. As missionary Jackie Pullinger has said, we, we live as followers of Jesus who live with soft hearts and hard feet. That's because we're called not to win the argument or win the cultural, cultural battle. We are called to love and serve people, to love and serve people even if they actually reject us. And to love them, we can't live apart from them. We must walk alongside them. It's about being different with purpose and integrity. There should be an attractiveness, in other words, and a strangeness to our way of living out the gospel in distinctive ways. And so right now, there's, there's a lot of battles going on in our culture. And we need to see that those battles exist, but there's a greater spiritual battle going on. And we have to see that, that the enemy would love to divide us and destroy not only the world and the nation, but the church. And, and in this battle, it would be easy to let our hearts get hard, right? And, and hardened because we disagree, because we don't understand, because we feel afraid or alone. And, and Peter's saying, keep your hearts soft, Right? Live out with a, a living hope, he says, as you even face persecution so that others might see God's love in your life. And then four, uh, I want to suggest that Peter's pointing us to live in community. Live in community. We, we, we face the rejection and the shame in our culture by living it out together. 
this faith in Jesus. Peter tells us that we are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. When we face rejection and shame in the world, we need to know that we are not alone. In Christ, we are part of a community who may be rejected by the world, but are precious as a people to God. And so that means that community is actually essential to our identity and our ability to follow Jesus. And right now, we feel the loss of community in, in a really acute ways, in part because we can't gather as a community in this space to worship. And that grieves us. It should grieve us. We experience that loss, and we long to gather again. But as I've thought about that and prayed about this place that God has us, where he's asked us to wait, I've wondered if God wants to reveal something really important to us uh, about community. If it's possible that God wants us to think about our community, and maybe there's an aspect of community that we have not yet experienced, at least not in its fullness. A community that goes far beyond seeing each other on a Sunday Perhaps an awareness that we so acutely feel the loss of Sunday because that was our only real experience of community week to week. And so I think just asking questions like that is really important because this is challenging for all of us. I mean, we live in such a radically individualistic and fragmented culture. And honestly, it's, it's normal these days uh, to think about worship together on a Sunday uh, as really the only touch point we have with our church community. And then we just kind of go back into our everyday living on our own with little relational interaction. But to be a spiritual house, like Peter's talking about, to be a, a family, as he describes elsewhere, is, is a call to live as a community that loves one another from the heart and is deeply, deeply engaged in life together. And so I think that's so important for us to endure a crisis, to endure suffering and rejection even beyond this moment. We need to to gather for worship and for prayer, but that itself is not enough. To endure, we need to sacrificially invest in one another and one another's lives during the week. Uh, Maybe God is making that more clear to us in this moment, that we've kind of settled for less and he wants so much more for us. And so that's why I'm encouraging us to think about the opportunity right now that we have to worship in our homes, to be the church right where we are, to take advantage of this time to reflect on what it means to be the church, not just when we gather here on a Sunday, but be the church in our neighborhoods, on our college campus, in our workplace, to be the church, not just when we gather for life groups or Bible studies, but wherever we are. And that's because following Jesus in community is an everyday reality. It's everyday life. And that's essential for us. It's essential for us, uh, and not only for us, but for those around us who don't know Jesus. And I think our our neighbors and our friends, what they need is more than just a relationship with an individual follower of Jesus. I think especially in this cultural moment, they need to encounter and experience a a community of Jesus followers in action. And so it's not just about inviting them to to come to a Sunday gathering or even to a, a life group gathering. It's about inviting them into this entire network of relationships that share Jesus and share life. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we have that kind of community? Do we have a place like that where we can invite people into to experience? Are we living as the church beyond these walls? And so following Jesus in our cultural moment, it's hard. 
It's hard not just because of the crisis we're facing. It's hard because of the, the cultural moment that exists and is only going to increase where we will face rejection and we will face shame for no other reason than faithfully following Jesus. And so I want us to be encouraged because Peter wants to encourage us. He wants to encourage us that we are not alone and that we can put uh, our faith in Jesus and that he will not let us be put to shame and that we can follow him with joy and hope how we can keep him precious to us. We can expect the suffering. We can exercise this practice of soft difference. And we can live our life in community, in real community, sharing life together in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've called us and you've built us up to be your church. And you founded this church on the living stone, the cornerstone of Jesus. And because of that, uh, Lord, we know that we will face what he faced, which is rejection. But Lord, we know you haven't rejected us. And in you, we have not been put to shame. So help us to live out our faith in these difficult times as those who know who we are, as those who can rest fully in the fact that we are loved in Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.